American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. So I'm going to do this fairly quickly because we want to make sure we have time. Um, without going into the entirety of the military backlog, that the key turning point, is, as has come up in some of our conversations, as we think about the turning point from 64 into 65, um, comes in the late summer, fall, especially in the West, um, and with the capture, with the culmination of Sherman's campaign to capture uh, Atlanta. With that, with the fall of Atlanta, a shift in people's perceptions in the fall of 1864 about the likelihood of Lincoln's reelection, and a shift with that about the perceptions of what's going to be possible in the next phase because of a belief that McClellan, though he himself had run to continue the war, had been saddled with a democratic platform that seemed to call to suggest the possibility of a quick peace. This continual interaction between the military and the political that had been first and foremost on the mind for Lee throughout the war, that victory was going to be causing the, America, the, the US to give up. And that was going to be a political defeat, not a military defeat. A military defeat <laughs> could cause the political collapse. And, it could, and an ongoing realization by commanders, especially those coming out of what they called the West, what we would now call Mississippi Valley, especially Grant and Sherman, that defeat of the Confederacy would also be a combination of military and politics. Military defeats that caused a failure of political will, a collapse of political will around the Confederacy. With the capture of Atlanta, moving super quickly, Sherman telegraphs uh, Lincoln, Atlanta is yours, and immediately a shift in the Republican Party that believes that they're likely to lose the, the election. There had been an effort to oust Lincoln as the candidate. A strong belief by Lincoln that McClellan will undo what he can of emancipation, and the work of abolition not yet, not yet completed. The 13th Amendment passed one House of Congress, not the other, not even submitted to the states. And a belief then, as they move toward the fall, that they need to move in such a way as to make it possible for more and more of these streams of contrabands, of runaway enslaved people, to reach US lines under Lincoln's belief that the US lacked the legal authority to re-enslave people who had achieved freedom. But that if McClellan were elected president and rescinded the proclamation, they could deny freedom to anyone who didn't reach U.S. lines. And to preserve as large a group of that. So this builds upon what we talked about going back from the start of the week with this ongoing interactive dialectical process in which free people run to U.S. lines, force these questions upon the U.S. government. U.S. government's continuing and sometimes faltering and sometimes slow and sometimes not as slow, responsibilities creating a dialogue in which it leads more people to run. And this speeding up over 1864 in part because of this recognition that if the Democrats win, that not only will abolition likely come to a halt, but even emancipation, the separate act of emancipating individual freedoms could cease. The Lincoln believed that they had worked in such a way that individually freed people could not be re-enslaved under U.S. laws, but that people who had not been freed by reaching U.S. lines was a more complex story. With the victories in Atlanta, and then with Sherman's march across uh, Georgia to the sea, his march through towards Savannah, many things start to change really quickly. Um, and these I'm just going to be able to touch on, or else like we could just spend the whole, uh, you know, the whole brief time. <laughs> Um, in Georgia in the, you know, in, uh, in the late summer 
of 18, and so the fall of 1864. One thing is a shift in Republican views. They don't have our polling. They might be lucky, for those of you who are like checking your RSS feeds every day and saying, what? No, no. Um, so they're going on a kind of gut level. On a gut level, they go from a lack of confidence to confidence. Scholars sometimes doubt whether Atlanta, A, was at Lincoln in as much trouble as, as he and some of his advisors thought. Um, but there's no question that among politicos, there's a view of we're going to lose or we're going to win. That helps to build momentum um, for what will come after the election, which is, you know, as infamously portrayed and misportrayed in, in uh, Spielberg's Lincoln, um, in the lame duck Congress taking up both the 13th Amendment and the Freedmen's Bureau bills um, that, had been, uh, that had been killed in the summer. Um, but it also leads to a continuing development of this ongoing process of what happens as the U.S. Army marches through areas of where slavery had remained largely intact. And that is Sherman moves across from Atlanta on his march to the sea to Savannah, that as had been happening throughout the war, but in some ways an even greater and greater velocity, large numbers, tens of thousands, perhaps more of African Americans, uh, follow the army across. And this is calculated on a couple of things. One, the thing that goes back to what we talked about at Hampton Roads, of the idea of an association of the US government with freedom that in many ways predated the US government's commitment to freedom. But it's also coming out of a recognition of what is going on as Sherman moves. And in this, I think we can see a glimpse of what I think is how an ongoing shift in how freedom is thought about by free peoples and what goes on. Which is not a freedom as this magical step process in which one goes from being not free to free. As it's often was portrayed in kind of romantic poetry of the day of, you know, sort of people deshackled, disenthralled, a nation disenthralled. But instead of freedom as proximity to power, and this goes to something we talked about earlier in the week, which is that faced with, with a strong 19th century sense of the power of society, not an inherent belief that state creates society, but that society has this powerful, ongoing uh, role in shaping daily life, and with a deep experience and painful experience of the extraordinary power and violence and willingness to use violence of planters, slaves by this point enslaved people have a strong sense that if Sherman's army marches through, and they become legally free by an encounter with it, and then it marches along, that their actual status on a day-to-day -day level might not be changed and might be worsened. Because what we'll see as Sherman moves along, especially as, um, as uh, the Bully Blimp is written about, as he turns into South Carolina, is the extraordinary efforts of Confederate and ex-Confederate and semi-official um, but rebel sympathizers to come behind Sherman's army to re-enslave, to murder, to try and break up these organizing groups of free people who are asserting their power over the land. Um, and so this sense that authority, that freedom has to be backed by power. In some areas, especially along the coast, where you have strong, large-scale, I don't mean strong as opposed to weak, but large-scale, overwhelming numbers of African Americans, what you see is the coalition of large self-governing units, like we talked about that's happening during the war. Um, but in parts of central Georgia, where you're talking about, as with much of the South, where African Americans are making up, say, 30, 40, 20, 30, 40% of the population, an awareness that if the US Army moves on, that they're going to be subject to an ongoing campaign of terror. And so people following in part, voting with their feet, that 
freedom means proximity to power, something that's going to shape this notion. And a power that may not be virtuous, many of them are critical for good reason of Sherman, including for his efforts to shake off this train that's following him, that he believes is slowing the army down, that's irrelevant to his question of how to force Confederate surrender, and that's creating a draw upon his supplies. But that will itself create this momentum of a problem to be dealt with, something powerful that hangs in the air as they're moving across Georgia. Most infamously, Sherman's men will blow up a bridge as freed slaves are trying to escape over it from the Confederate and leave them to drown in the waters. Um, and, uh, and so it's not a question that they believe inherently that all the US soldiers are virtuous or wise or that Sherman himself is, as much as they understand the alternative, which is to face a reassertive planter class without a counterweight that they can try and call on is to face, as they face in many parts of the South, both during the war and after, kind of ongoing campaign of terror and violence that'll spill right over into the war. So late 1864 and what is from the west moving to the east is defined by this push to the sea. At the end of, uh, at the, in December, uh, Sherman's uh, men take Savannah. In Savannah, one of the most extraordinary moments that if you've, uh, that you've probably read, but if you haven't, that I would encourage you to, which is, um, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton comes down from Washington, D.C. to Savannah, and there, in a freestanding house that still stands in Savannah, there he and Sherman meet with a group, I believe it's 20, is it 19? Uh, they meet with a group of African-American ministers pulled from this train of people following, um, and they sit down and meet with them, and they have this incredible discussion about what does slavery mean to you, the coercive extraction of force without consent, what does freedom mean about the willingness of African-Americans to, to serve in the army, about the best methods of obtaining? One of the things the ministers say is there's a strong willingness, but the efforts of forced conscription, of kind of marching through camps and forcibly enlisting all the young men are creating this backlash, um, and that volunteers can be obtained, um, about the centrality of land, and about the centrality of ownership of land and possession of land, um, to what they understand freedom to mean, a kind of way of extracting and creating an independence, or what the scholar Stephen Hahn called a nation under their feet, a world of their own that they can defend against what many of them believe to be, and will turn out to be, an ongoing campaign to undermine their autonomy, their independence by a white planter class. And in one of the most interesting moments of this, um, they, I forget now if, they, if it's clear from this, whether it's Sherman or Stanton, who asked, would you rather, do you believe you can live scattered among the white people or to live by yourselves? One of the ministers who had been freeborn and had been a, uh, a pastor um, says, we can live scattered among the white people. And in all the other questions, the minister who answers, usually Garrison Frazier, answers, and then there's kind of quiet acknowledgement for the degree that the sources tell us. On this, after this answer, Garrison Frazier speaks next and says, I don't believe that's possible. They hate us too much, and our only way of security is to live among ourselves. Then they ask, and every other minister agrees with Frazier. Um, so coming out of this, this synchronization of this action of free people in themselves, acting, of course, to, you know, on their own freedom, but also acting in a way that creates a crisis, a usable crisis 
in the US Army. Refinding access that would have been unthinkable before the war to high people in power and articulating revisions to them um, creates one of these sort of golden moments of reconstruction that'll define 1865 in lots of ways as this lost period, which is that coming out of that, Sherman will issue his general or his, uh, his field orders that set aside a coastal region that goes essentially um, from what's now Jacksonville up the coast to the southern edge of North Carolina as a reserve for free people in which all most whites have already fled um, from most of those areas as the U.S. has taken control, but that only U.S. whites with, military, only whites with U.S. military permission um, can enter and to create the capacity, a system for claiming usage, not ownership, but usage of 40 acres. Not the mule, but the 40 acres written into, into the U.S. field orders. Uh, usage of 40 acres. A major question that I'll just have time to touch upon is about what usage means in this context. Sherman has a very strong, in a way that will come back and have a big impact um, on what's going to happen in, uh, you know, in a few months from now, but a scant few minutes from now for us, about the idea that in wartime the army and the government can do anything it wants and only has to be bound by necessity and honor. And that honor and necessity should prevent egregious you know, attacks or unnecessary or unhelpful attacks. But that in wartime, building upon a growing sense of belief centered around Francis Lieber, the greatest think legal thinker of the Civil War, who had authored a code for Henry Halleck uh, that then gets distributed through the army, arguing that the nation's first job is to ensure its own survival, and the necessity of survival creates the authority to do whatever commanders believe they need to do for its survival. Not a license for wanton cruelty or useless cruelty, but an enormous license to act in wartime. And that view of a powerful sense of what wartime gives you the capacity to do will make Sherman during the war the boldest of the, UL, of the high US commanders. Though it'll make him, as I'll just touch upon, in any ways the most cautious once battlefield fighting is over. So he says that it's always clear to him that the usage he can give them, he has no power in peacetime. US military officers can't come in and seize your house you know, permanently or take the title. The army tries to stay away from any permanent property claims. But that while the war endures, this is set up as a coastal region. Tens of thousands of people settle along this region over the course of 1865. Many of them families of soldiers or extended families of soldiers. Sherman then moves into South Carolina, where, it, where famously he wants to make the South Carolinians, the white South Carolinians, pay for their role in starting the rebellion. What he considers, as a lot of, uh, as a lot of Northerners considered, was that a small group of planters had used their excessive power and their excessive ruthlessness to trick a majority of white Southerners. And one of the great blocks in understanding policy during the war and after the war will be this belief that there's a middle ground of white Southerners who Republicans can appeal to. Maybe they can even get their votes, but they can appeal to. And this will frustrate US policy early in the war, and it'll continue to be this frustration during, uh, as we get to the war's end. In 1865, to move super quickly, we get both Sherman pushing upward um, through, uh, through South Carolina and eventually cornering one of the US's, uh, one of the Confederacy's two remaining large armies near Duke, uh, near Durham Station. While in this confusing uh, map up here, Grant continues to try and bottle Lee in. 
And this gets us moving very quickly, so Donna doesn't scold me, uh, to what many people consider uh, the conclusion of the war, this sort of mythic moment at Appomattox, where face surrounded, pinned against the river by the US Army, um, Lee and Grant meet famously um, and, uh, and agree to surrender. But this moment, which I'll just touch on and I'm glad to expand on in questions, is actually interesting in a couple of ways. One of the ways is that it functions as this myth in which we separate under an old view that the war was good and Reconstruction was bad. Appomattox began the moment when we switched from the good war to bad Reconstruction. And so this sort of unifying coming together of a family reunited, and then why did things fall apart? Well, they fell apart because we went from good military to bad political. In interesting ways, as Reconstruction got revitalized, um, over the last, certainly especially over the last half century, but you know, with the longer roots that go back to Reconstruction itself that they're pulling from, as the idea of Reconstruction got uh, revitalized, in many ways this hinge of a myth of Appomattox endured and it shifted from a softness of Appomattox that made Reconstruction much harder. And so the radical critique in many ways picked up the conservative celebration and inverted it, and assumed something momentous had happened here that took all kinds of things off the table and made it harder to restart Reconstruction later. My argument is that, in fact, if you look at what goes on, both between them and on the ground, that this myth, while powerful as a way of sort of asserting a kind of brother's war, in which, as you know, people say, a brother's war that excludes not just the sisters, but the brothers, right? A brother's <laughs> war of a white family war. Um, that it also excludes what actually functions. Because what had happened as Lee approaches Grant is he writes and says, I write to a day to ask you to talk about peace. And Grant immediately says to his surrounding commanders, if he's asking for peace, it's because he means to fight. What Grant understands is that he has no authority for peace, but that peace also signifies something that speaks back to what Sherman understood when he said usage during the war. That calling an end to war powers was different than fighting upon the battlefield. A, that that belonged to Washington, D.C. The president would end the war, or Congress, or some combination, and that's going to be a big problem of what combination. But that what peace would mean would be what people understood in Republican theory to be normality. What made the United States survive through its various crises? Not that everyone agreed, but that so much of power was leveraged down away, not just from, from national governments, but even from state governments that so much authority was held in the arms of sheriffs and judges. And in peacetime, they had all but autonomy over their regions. They could arrest US military officers. Well, Grant knew he wasn't going to have that, that if he signed a peace accord, even if he had the power, that he knew that Virginia sheriffs would immediately start arresting his soldiers. He wasn't going to have that. They could assert the primacy of state law over federal orders. What power the Emancipation Proclamation have in peacetime was a very large legal question. Every state at this point, except for Tennessee, continues to have state laws sustaining slavery. What would prevent that? So the transition into peacetime, he understands, is both something he can't do, but also something that would preclude any kind of transformation after the war. He rejects it. He says, I can't talk of peace. If you want to talk of surrender, then I can need to talk of surrender. And so what he puts off the table is a political settlement what they reach is not only, it's not peace, but it's not even a surrender of the Confederate armies. It's a surrender of Lee's army. 
that another army of nearly equal size remains in the field um, near Durham, North Carolina. And here, in this sort of one of these moments that you can unfold outward and outward, there, meeting right as news of Lincoln's assassination arrives, um, Sherman, Confederate General Jeremy Johnston, meet, and there Sherman does what, Lee, what Grant won't, which is he says, we're in a moment of chaos and crisis, let's settle all of them. Peace between the U.S. and the Confederacy, peace from the Potomac to the Rio Grande, don't just surrender your army, but make a deal for the Confederacy. Unluckily or luckily, however you want to think about it, not that far away, Jefferson Davis and the cabinet are in the Greensboro train station because of the Confederacy's inability to develop a functional, uh, smooth operating train lines. He's only gotten from Richmond to Greensboro in this time period and is trying to figure out how to get south, possibly to Florida, possibly to Texas, possibly to Cuba or Mexico. Johnson goes back and forth and they work out an armistice, not a surrender. And what it says gives us a sense of what is possible, because we do need to keep hold of what's come out of the literature, of what Reconstruction doesn't accomplish. And here I would say we want to think about two different ways into that question. One of what's never tried in Reconstruction, one of what is tried in Reconstruction and is overthrown later. And some of the answers to why those are overthrown, I would suggest, are actually questions about the 1880s and 1890s. We can have a tendency that if something in the end doesn't last, that its failures are internally built. But that lets off the hook the question of what happens in the 1880s and 1890s that actually dismantles the vote and access to civil rights, things that were built into Reconstruction. There's a second group of things that are not tried in Reconstruction, especially land distribution on a large scale, um, some of which sit up on the table. But the other thing that we have to keep in mind as we think about evaluating Reconstruction is what else was possible. And instead of operating from a sense that everything that happened was inevitable, and we can then you know, uh, discuss why we didn't have more, this agreement gives us a sense of what else is possible. Because in the deal between Sherman and Johnston, what Sherman agrees to is that every Confederate state governor stays in office, that Confederate local officials stay in office, sheriffs, judges stay in office, a declaration of peace that implies that the Army's wartime powers will end, and no mention of slavery. If this had happened, if Appomattox had really ended the war, what we would have had would be the continued fight over the question of millions of people who remained under the law of slavery at this point. About 750,000 or so of the South's 4 million slaves have reached US lines. Another roughly 500,000 are covered by emancipation that's happening in Maryland and Missouri and West Virginia and Washington, D.C. There remain on the order of ballpark, nobody's got an exact number, but of two and three quarter million people at the time of surrender who have been slaves and who have not re reached U.S. lines. And their status remains up in the air. Of course, those people believe and have believed for a long time that freedom is coming. But what they need is not a declaration of you should want to be free, they know that, but a statement of the power that will back and reinforce and sustain their freedom. That could be off the table or delayed or rendered confusing in this condition. Because the 13th Amendment, which has now passed Congress, is going to be submitted to the states. And the idea of southern rebel states voluntarily passing that with their governments intact approaches <laughs> And so as this, so this sits as one possibility. The Confederates are totally in charge with their old systems, arresting US officers 
who try who respond to slaves, which they do in Kentucky all the time, is this indicator of what can happen? Um, for responding to runaway slaves, arresting them as kidnappers, arresting them as kidnappers when they arrest, white to attack slaves, and a real immediate reimposition with all of the authority behind them of as much planter power as possible. But that is revoked when it gets to Washington, D.C. Even Andrew Johnson and the cabinet unanimously vote to reject Sherman's plan. Grant goes down to tell him your choices are to accept surrender or to step away and have me accept surrender. There is no peace. Sherman writes these amazing letters that give us this insight. Um, he's a conservative, uh, you know, a, a loyal conservative, a northern conservative, but a very adept thinker. He writes all these letters to people saying, I don't think you understand what you mean. If we say the war isn't over and the Confederates don't exist, who is in charge? He says, if, you know, I'm not, if, if the sheriffs aren't in charge, then who is in charge? All we have is the army, and you can't mean the army is in charge. And to his shock, he realizes that to the degree that they've thought it out, which is not to 100%, that in fact that is the plan that has emerged, especially from Secretary of War Stanton and down through him into Grant. And so what you see is an interesting scattering. Here's where I'll show you my digital site in a, in a minute, but here's a static map of where the army is in March and April. Um, in terms of permanent posts, not as they're marching along, you can see with the occupation of Tennessee and the Mississippi River, but large parts of the South in which the Army's not visible at all. And that between coming after those surrenders, you can see what happens over the summer is an extraordinary movement of the Army deep into the Southern countryside using the Articles of War. That doesn't mean they arrest everybody or they depose everybody, but as they march in, they do two things. First thing that Grant is concerned about is that you'll have a nonstop guerrilla war. He doubts whether the Confederacy is loyal, but he also doubts whether they would even stop fighting. So the first thing that he believes is he needs to have provo marshals who are in charge of regulating society, including in some places passes, what people can wear, banning Confederate buttons and flags, um, and trying to make sure that there's not a sign of a continuing ongoing war. But as these soldiers march out across the countryside, very quickly they start reporting back, slavery still exists. People are being held in slavery. People have recently been sold. The slaves know that the war is meant to bring them freedom. But they can't, but the ones who are farther away from US lines can't reach, or they have family ties that make it impossible for older people to leave the rest of their family behind in slavery. And they say, if you aim to make slavery end, you will have to kill it. And it won't come from proclamations, it'll come from bayonets. And at this point, a series of ambitious commanders, uh, Quincy Adams Gilmore in South Carolina, among others, send orders to have their soldiers march through the countryside. And to march through, to read, or to have someone else read the Emancipation Proclamation, and to declare that they are the paramount authority. And Gilmore says, "Tell it, remind everyone, anyone in office is in office because you say so. It can be removed because you say so. In most of the, US, uh, the rebel states, the US Army, I don't call it the Union Army, but the US, because it is an, uh, the enduring United States Army, the US Army works through and oversees enduring magistrates, but they replace them in some areas, replace some, replace bunches in others. And they continue to move through, in part, as you can look into the fall, to have this deep occupation 
of rural areas in the South as they confront what Sherman had asked, which is, is it even possible to remake a rural society? And he says, look at Rome. Rome had this giant empire. What did they do? They held capital cities, highways, and rivers. And that's all anyone in history has ever been able to do. Because you cannot remake a rural society because you can't be present in every nook and crevice. And that turns out in some ways to be prescient, but in some ways to show what it is that the US Army is actually doing in response to these series of complaints that free people are making as they come in to describe the condition. A, that slavery exists and won't die. B, that even after these readings of the Emancipation Proclamation, that, if, uh, that even if there's a sort of tepid acknowledgment of the end of slavery, a determination to retain as much of it as possible. So limited, so refusing people pay, so wages, movement, whipping, separation of families. And this continuing dialogue in which free people coming to US Army posts start to help to develop a concept that had been developing on a legal level through anti-slavery lawyers of what are the fundamental rights of a citizen. Develops in these posts upon the ground uh, what they call on the ground practical freedom. And practical freedom means the capacity to do these things, to be able to move, to marry. It's a pretty limited path, group compared to the ideals of voting, um, which will come, but then you know not stay, or land redistribution, which never comes. But was it present in the South and would not have been present in the South if Sherman had agreed, if Sherman's terms had been accepted? Movement, wages, contract. So the army is moving through the South during this period. At the same time, um, and we can see this interestingly in a question of somebody like Lewis Hughes. Lewis Hughes is held slave in Pontotoc near Tupelo. He writes, although there's some confusion about dates in his memoir, but based on the dates in his memoir, he writes that in 1865, they know about uh, the US presence in Memphis, they know about the Confederate surrender, and they still remain being held as slaves with planters patrolling the roads to prevent them from getting to Memphis. He and another slave named George Washington, amazingly enough, <laughs> run for Pontotoc, which is now sort of almost being swallowed up by Tupelo. Um, and at this point, the US has just started to move into north, this part of northern Mississippi. It's in Senatobia, it's not yet in Oxford. They go to Memphis. They go to Memphis. They say, we need a declaration of our family's freedom. The Freedmen's Bureau agent that they encounter, or the Provo Marshal, I forget which, says, you don't need it. You're free. And they say, well, that doesn't mean anything. We need force. And he says, I can't send you any, but go down to Senatobia and see. When they go into Senatobia, they have this amazing experience that shows the possibilities and also the limits of the US Army presence. In Senatobia, when they arrive, African Americans around Senatobia say, and in many ways this is an inversion of the common pattern, they say, the officers have you know, bought in to, you know, they're dealing with all the, uh, the rich Southerners. And many often it's, it's the reverse, that the guys in the tents down at the end will be more sympathetic, but it might help to give them a little incentive. Hughes and Washington have a small amount of cash at this point. I don't remember that he explains how. They go into the tents at the end. They offer to pay two soldiers if they'll go over with them to Pontotoc. They go over to Pontotoc. Confederacy has surrendered by Hughes' chronology. Slavery has ended. They ride into Pontotoc. So with the two US soldiers behind them, when they knock on the door, the uh, planter says that he doesn't, as it gets repeated, intend to be governed by any such laws. And he doesn't care what these soldiers say, and they hear people in the back going to get their guns. And it is not unusual for white Southerners, not only it's very common for them to attack free people, 
but it's not at all unusual for them also to attack white loyalists or even active duty uh, US soldiers, though um, demobilized black soldiers are probably the most likely to be attacked uh, by late 1865-1866. In a, a moment of quick thinking, one of the soldiers says, great, I've got a whole squad of cavalry, eight people coming behind here, and I'm going to need a lot of head. That's a lie. At that moment, the planter and his family fall into confusion. Hughes and Washington grab their families and flee to Memphis. And they flee to Memphis. This is a terrible irony, given what will happen in Memphis in 1866, so they're going by this, because they want to be around Fort Pickering. But having seen what the planters will do, it's not they think the US Army is full of saints and martyrs, but that they need some kind of counterweight. In fact, Fort Hughes, they moved to Detroit, and so they're not in Memphis in the massacre that happens in May 1866 after the demobilization of lots of the soldiers at Fort Pickering. So this gives us some indication about these different ways in which we might think about both the end of battlefield fighting not being the end of the war, the relationship between that and the end of slavery. I have, and I'm not going to go through all of these now because of time, um, but a bunch of images about these periods of the end of slavery, and a really neat book that's on the PowerPoint, which will be available to you, that comes out of an earlier effort of what happened with the capture of uh, the U.S. coast of the southeastern coastal regions, uh, written by Vincent Collier, who comes down into eastern North Carolina, where there are large-scale contraband camps. Uh, comes back, and you can see what he uses as his illustration, and to raise support for the idea of the necessity of ongoing intervention that freedom is not going to be a moment of flash of disenthrallment, but require a status, ongoing intervention and interposition. He includes all these interesting discussions about this, the labor, the movements of the slaves, the bravery of the ex-slaves and of the freed people in the contraband camps. And Collier, interestingly enough, will become one of these people who, after the war, disillusioned goes west and becomes a famous painter of western landscapes, as well as a bureaucrat who engages with um, Native American, with uh, Native Americans, especially in Alaska, um, and in ways that, to our perspective, can seem uh, much less uh, sympathetic than the way he had engaged with free people in the South. So all of these things are sitting on the stage over 1865, as we get to the point where these next sort of chronological steps happen, which I'll just very quickly refer to. Um, Andrew Johnson starting to move on Lincoln's plans and to appoint provisional governors. Um, for these southern states with the goal of them calling uh, constitutional conventions to end slavery in the South and to remake the governments of the South. This elections in the fall of 1865 that occur um, in many ways become then an instigator to the turning point of Reconstruction because what white southerners do is they not only don't elect uh, you know, loyalists, they vote out the moderates the moderate secessionists, or the people who've been wary of secession to Fort Sumter, that Johnson had appointed. And Johnson has a lot to answer for. But in this context, the, many of the governors he had appointed um, had actually been wary at one point or another of secession. And he's trying to use them to build a base in the South. They vote them out and replace them with the most diehard secessionists possible, including Alexander Stevens, Vice President of the Confederacy, voted, in, voted to Congress in the fall of 1865. And even more, some of them refuse at first to end slavery. Um, and Johnson says, if you don't end slavery, you're going to be kept under martial law. Or when they do, refuse to permit black testimony um, and pass the black codes that are aimed to restrict movement, to restrict the ability to make free contracts, 
to create these powerful vagrancy laws that will subject African Americans to constant threat of imprisonment, um, and in Mississippi to restrict land ownership and property ownership, and in South Carolina, business license insurance. And it's that fight that will come out there um, that will eventually lead Congress to exclude all of the remaining Confederate states from representation and to reimpose the, or to continue with, to take control of the war powers and to continue the imposition of war powers through the South through 1866 and then in 1867 to use those to call for new constitutional conventions that will sweep away the old governments for black suffrage. Very quickly, just to give you a sense of what goes on on my site, and then we'll, uh, or the site that Scott Nesbitt and I developed, have a site that aims to use the mapping of the presence of the US soldiers to give a narrative sense of what occurs in Reconstruction. Um, so that, let me see. I'll go here to the map itself. What you can do with this is you can look at a month. You can look either at Calvary individually. You can look at African-American soldiers. You can look at total soldiers. You can plot it against where rail lines are in the South, um, where census in order to see the relationship between African-American presence and where the soldiers are. And you can move it across the chronology. You can focus in on individual states in order to see what happens as the Army starts to move across 65 into 66 um, to see what happens as areas empty out. And another interesting feature of it um, are what we call zones of occupation, um, which uses the existing rail lines as a, and the presence of cavalry to ask how far could U.S. soldiers actually get. And in the inverse of this, in the areas where you can see that the Army can't reach, you can see how much of the Army even by 1866, how much of the South is inaccessible even to the Army during this period? And the question there will be an ongoing fight on the ground for control in which the Army is only going to be a minor inter interposing force. And other areas where you can see the Army presence is much larger. This rolls through. Um, you can also map it against how people voted in 1870 and so on. This rolls through. You can see now the start of military reconstruction as Grant starts to anticipate it. The re-spread of the army in 1867 um, as they start to uh, recall constitutional conventions for the first time with African-American suffrage. Um, and then the drawdown, because a question that had set for those in the Congress and the army who believed that the problem was too quick of a movement of peace, none of them believed they'd be able to stay at war forever. They did not believe the cultural idea of a forever war. That war was a set of powers that would have to go away. And for most of them, they wanted to end by November 1868, because there's a presidential election. And to get to peace through these new constitutional conventions, to get Grant in office, and to hope they've constructed governments in the South. Few states resist in over 1870. Virginia, Texas, Mississippi, and then finally Georgia. But in 1871, the outbreak of Klan violence in the Carolinas, Kentucky calls the 7th Cavalry in, and now a question about peace powers. What power does the Army have when it's not wartime? Grant issues proclamation suspending, empowered by Congress, to suspend habeas corpus, but does not allow military trials. So the Army makes thousands of arrests, holds them, uh, but many of them don't come to trial or reach quick settlements. And you can see a drawdown over the 1870s. There'll be a blip back up between uh, 74 and 75 as we, uh, as we go along. Um, and you can see the retreat of the Army from many states over 74 and 75, some efforts to reassert the Army in particularly problematic areas. 
in November 1876, you'll see a re-spread of the army in order, just in time for the presidential election, and then the crisis that follows, where with a disputed presidential election, the question of where the, power, where the army will remain on the ground, it is often said, and then I'll wrap up, that the army pulls out of the South after the uh, so-called Compromise of 1877, although it's said by many eminent historians, it's false. Uh, what happens in 1877 is the army moves from its positions around state legislators and legislatures in uh, Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana back to its bureaus. So in Columbia, South Carolina, they march five blocks. Eventually the army does draw down, but you can see the army remains in the South, largely at coastal forts and at recruiting stations, but continues to be called out into the late 1880s, early 1890s um, in support of U.S. Marshals and federal judge orders. Um, or violations of civil rights and other, and other issues. And so the ongoing question about how much power the army will have in peacetime and whether it can be utilized against the oppression of free people will continue to shape U.S. politics through the 1870s. In 1878, 1879, the Democrats defund the army. They don't pay it in order to force a massive reduction because they continue to fear, and we should think about this as we say about what the U.S. Um, you know, didn't try to do, and they continue to fear this ongoing use of the Army of the South, and then eventually an amendment that we call now the Posse Comitatus Act, even though it was an amendment to appropriation, seems to preclude the use of the Army and without direct authorization by the President in this effort to sever, to dissever the Army from the creation, from the defense of civil rights in the South. So I'll wrap up here because I see, uh, see frantic handways behind. Do we have any, any time for questions, or I can talk with people after? All right, sorry for that abrupt down. <laughs> um, <sorry. laughs> I got a ringer. Megan. Do you guys have plans for mapping up your occupation to the Western forts in there to see how that is moving personnel yes. around? Yes, the West is the most important thing in the world. Megan, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, finishing a book on the Civil War in the West. Um, yeah, so we put in for some additional grants because one of the things to try to understand would be just uh, would be to try to understand the historic context of the use of the army. So what we're aiming to do is to look at to be able to map both where the army is and some questions like how much does um, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the U.S. accession of those lands change? Do we see a sort of changing use of the army and occupation as they take those lands? Or is that simply a continuation of post-Louisiana purchase practices? Um, so that we can understand in that context what the spread is. Of course, if we did the West, if we did the map of occupation of how much they could cover, um, and this is something interesting because also scholars will often say the Army turned from the South to the West, which is just also flatly untrue. Um, the Army's presence in the West is tiny. And the single most powerful complaint of white Western settlers is where is the Army when we need them? Um, and that the sort of oppressive capture of the West is really in many ways a kind of project of settler colonialism, with the army at times trying to restrain, at times in ignorance, at times contributing, um, but where the impulse is actually the people on the ground. But there's an interesting way in which this sort of scholarship has tended to sort of excuse the people in order to pin the blame upon the state, when in many ways, both in the, in the acts of Southern planters and in the acts of Western settlers, it's the people themselves, rather than being fonts of virtue, who are pushing, um, you know, in the West, explicitly genocidal, and in the South, if not genocidal, extraordinarily violent campaigns 
um, in which the army is sometimes a helper, sometimes a passive observer, uh, sometimes an opponent, but often not the main driver. So that's our, that's our goal. And also to match it against violence, to look to see how much of an impact does it make when a post moves out. Of course, one of the big problems with that is the data itself. A lot of the data only survives if it's reported to the army. So if they leave, you can look like suddenly violence stopped, right? Because the person, you know, the, the sort of avenue of access to the federal government is cut off. Sorry. So what are uh, poor rural whites? Oh, that's a, that's a really so, Because did they, as the plant is being started, <coughs> did they manage to move up into positions of political authority, or are they totally left out of the equation? Here I would say there's a you know, principled set of, uh, of historiographical debates that continue. Um, about you know which I'm you know not at the at the at the forefront and so we'll feel uh, you know okay and you know caricaturing them no um, but which basically spring from the question about how much should we see the Confederacy as a in some counts a coup an elite project that manipulates poor people free state of Jones or something and how much should we understand the Confederacy as a project that actually sustains an extraordinary amount of loyalty among poor whites. Um, and it's a really complex set of questions to answer. If you look at enlistment numbers, the Confederacy is pretty, uh, has a pretty incredible rate of return if you exclude it to white people. Right? That it mobilizes an, uh, an almost unimaginable, in world historical terms, proportion of its white population. Very few of them come in through conscription. In that sense, it's very difficult to say um, that it is imposed upon poor whites who could easily have disappeared earlier in the war. Um, and it turns out that the old idea of a rich man's war, poor man's fight, Joseph Blathar said, at least in the Army of Northern Virginia, that it's the inverse, that planters are more likely and the children are more likely to serve than poor people. It's not clear that's true in the West. Um, and so for that reason, there's been another group of scholars who have said that on the whole, while it, you know, it's interesting to think, and certainly there's a diverse range of opinions, and have been powerful political opposition, you know, factions, including powerful political parties among Southern whites before the war, other scholars have emphasized that we should see the Confederacy as actually achieving an extraordinary amount of unity. Um, that starts to collapse on practical levels as you get to the winter of 1863, and especially the winter of 1864, where a lot of soldiers go home. But many of them actually come back. And so figuring out, and many of the desertions are not political, but about the sort of breakdown because of the US Army severing railroad connections, the breakdown of food at home. Um, so it does show that people aren't willing to stay in the army if they believe their families are starving. But under those, if that's the criteria, then the U.S. Army, almost no army would look like it achieves cohesion. Um, if the power of the, uh, the idea of seeing the fragmentation and fighting within the Confederacy is it does help us to see the fundamental class and bound nature of Confederate policies, which were to sustain a planter elite. The power of the other is it helps us to see why Republicans, um, and even Andrew Johnson, when he breaks with the Republican Party, find it so hard to get significant um, white support in the South, which is they become one of the, although there are certain, you know, you know notoriously named Scalawags and so on, while they become some white Southerners who move over, they don't in general, with some statewide exceptions, tend to be the poorer ones. Um, and that on the whole, the white South stands out for its dramatic achievement of an internal racial political unity in, at the ballot box, even if there's obviously dissension and competing views of how to use that, but no. This also speaks to whether to understand Jim Crow as an elite project to manipulate and drive out for whites, which it very much does in effect, 
and in that sense is a sort of second coup uh, that breaks up the idea of a poor white African-American coalition, or to see Jim Crow as a much more unified expression of white public opinion, about which you can find scholars on both sides of that equation, too. So um, there's clear, Lou Carlo has done really interesting work on religion as the basis of reconstructing white Southern unity and a sort of religious vision that even in places outside of the official bounds of the Confederacy, like Kentucky, articulates at the heart of Southern, white Southern Christianity is a belief that the Bible is literally true, which we know because the Bible talks about slavery, and Northern churches, by breaking the slavery, have broken away contextualism to create a kind of spiritualism of the Bible. And so this creation of an inward-looking Southern religious tradition that becomes, it's too early to call it fundamentalist, but becomes highly textualist, highly literalist, in contradistinction to other regions, in part because of this belief that the defense of the idea of slavery, even after slavery is gone, depends upon a literal reading of the Bible and a resistance to the idea of a spiritual or essentialist reading of the Bible. But do we see it as a moment for possibility of social That's a good question. I mean, it's uh, there are certainly people who aim to do it, and it's gonna, you're going to get a variance state by state, because you get certain pockets of the South, um, say in North Carolina, William Holden portrays himself very much as somebody who's going to bring together the people excluded out of, an old <laughs> Democrat, but who now becomes a Republican on this kind of uh, small p populistic message. Um, and he had been a secessionist, but he turns against the war, Johnson appoints him. And he, he strips away the whole, unlike the other provisional govern, governors, he um, fires every magistrate in the state. After a real power lies, 3,000 offices he clears out in the in midsummer of 1865, and he wants to appoint a whole new power structure. He runs for re-election as the food. Um, so there remain, and North Carolina was a state where there had been pockets of critique against the Confederacy. He then remakes himself into support of black suffrage and gets elected as a Republican with black votes in 1868 and then becomes the first governor, and he calls out the state militia against the plan in North Carolina, and becomes the first governor in this history to be impeached in the war. Um, so there are these people who are doing it, and this powerful interest in the literature, and this idea of this moment of cross-racial alliance um, that exists at certain moments. In terms of the internal mobility that the war opens up, it's an interesting question. I mean, most of the literature has suggested that there is churn in the, in the, plan, in the elite class, but that it's actually a relatively standard amount of churn. So there are always people falling out and some small people falling in, but that it's not a moment for a while that was understood as a historic rupture of the planter class that created these modernizers, pathway to power. But now it's understood that this was sort of a part of the sort of the destructive force of planter capitalism that it always had this churn of planters falling out and other people working in there. Sure. What the impact of this was beyond just the southern region, simply by virtue of the fact that I assume many of the people were. So one of the things I'll let it run just to get through. <laughs> one of the things that you'll see here, I'm emphasizing where black troops are, because this is one answer to the question. Um, so one of the things that makes it confusing is that there is a massive expansion of the U.S. Army, of the volunteer army during the war, 
So that a, a total of two million people enlist in it, a million, you know, is the, you know, just slightly over a million is the largest standing force at a time. Most of those people, though there's some variations, enlist for what the, for terms by the end of the war, that are three years or until the end of the war. Many of them think Appomattox or the surrender at Bennett's Courthouse or the surrender of the Confederacy into Texas is the end of the war. Um, the Army tells them explicitly that's not the end of the war, and Congress or the President will tell you when it's the end of the war. But this is not a popular viewpoint among these enlisted men as you get into the summer who want to get back for parties, right? U.S. Army as a whole, um, you know, draws a total of two million people across, uh, you know, across the North. Um, so both you're talking about this sort of upsurge of, of both urban and of, uh, of rural you know, agricultural communities to produce that. What you see over the summer in terms of who's there at that time is that people start writing to their congressmen. And congressmen start pressuring the Secretary of War. And at the same time, the Secretary of the Treasury is saying, we have no money. Right? The Civil War cost $4 billion in 1865 dollars. Um, the U.S. had a, a debt incurred in the war of over $3.1 or so billion dollars in 1865 dollars. Um, and gold has been dissevered from dollars by the, by the inflationary pressures of the war. And so they've been having trouble selling their last groups of bonds in the, in the winter to early spring of 1865 and said, we have no money. So actually, the U.S. Army is not paying its soldiers at certain points. It's paying the promissory notes early in 1865. Um, so there's a heavy pressure to move people out to stop future encumbrances. And so the Secretary of War starts to move out volunteer units, especially those that are well politically connected. Um, and so by the million people in service in uh, May 1865, by October is down to about 180,000, so 820,000 people have been moved out. Um, and by, the, by January, it's down to about 80,000 people. Disproportionately in the South, with some remain in the West. Um, and at that point, what they expect is that Congress will pass then a new standard regular army, um, which they expect to swell it up to Johnson aspect to be something like up to 80 to 100,000 people. Congress actually only approves the U.S. regular army of something like 66,000 people. Uh, so they actually end up flushing out more people in that term um, before, and then switching from a volunteer to a regular force. So the last volunteers don't drift out. 67 is a company, some individuals. Clerks stay longer. Um, that regular army bill then uh, creates the first regular army as opposed to volunteer army, African American um, regiments, and those will uh, those will be um, uh, those will become the basis of the Buffalo Soldiers. During the the strain in which people are trying to go home, the force in the South will be disproportionately African American for a time in the fall of 1865, and that'll create its own. Talked about it much earlier, its own strains about um, white Southerners complaining about black troops being present in the South. A suggestion that is sometimes misread as an order from Johnson to move them to coastal forts that happens in some states, but that Grant disregards or empowers his commanders to disregard for others. And so through 66 to 68, you continue to see some African American troops in the South. But one of the symbols of the transformation of 68 to 70 is increasingly the African American. Texas and it's a place. Okay. Thank, Thank you. <laughs>